cool in the furnace. In chapter 2, Daniel played a prominent role while his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were quiet prayer partners relegated to the background. In chapter 3, however, these three friends take center stage and Daniel himself is absent from the story. Most likely that transition is set up back in chapter 2 and verses 48 through 49. Look, look at those with me. Chapter 2, 48 and 49. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. While everyone was coming out for the big day of Nebuchadnezzar's statue out on the plain of Dura, the three friends were out there with all the crowds, but Daniel had to stay back at the royal palace. That's why he's not where his friends are as he's been promoted. And with everyone else gone, Daniel's in charge of the palace. Well, verses 1 through 7, we have the idol. Having already introduced the idea of metallic monstrosities in chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar had his nightmare this large statue adorned with a head of gold. The story now transitioned to a real, not a nightmare, but a real statue, even more enormous inside, gilded in gold, standing all the taller. Apparently the dream motivated our megalomaniacal monarch to actually construct a, an image that he thought was worthy of everyone's worship in all the kingdom of Babylonia. Now the dimensions of this golden god are absolutely astonishing in a day with no cranes and no modern tools. It was 90 feet tall. You're 55 feet from here to there. So imagine 90 feet tall statue, almost twice as tall as our sanctuary. The text describes in verse 1 that it was made of gold. It's probably wood and other materials overlaid with gold that reminds us of the construction comparable methods in Isaiah 40:19, where the idol, a craftsman, casts it and a goldsmith plates it with gold. Or in Jeremiah 10, which refers to the gods of wood overlaid with silver and gold. So this monstrosity of a statue gilded in gold shining on the plain of Dura. Now, a lot of commentators say, no way, that's folklore. No one can make a statue 90 feet tall. The reality is it was quite common in that period. Before you dismiss the believability of the story, let me remind you the enormous statues were often constructed by ancient kings. Herodias tells us, for example, the mentions a sitting figure of Zeus 
all of gold in the temple of Baal of Babylon, as well as a figure of a man 12 cubits high, entirely of solid gold, in the same temple at the time of Cyrus. Or think about the Pharaohs, Ramses II and the others, the enormous statues they made of themselves and were placed throughout Egypt. But if you, if you still don't believe me, go home and Google the Colossus of Rhodes around 300 B.C. It was 105 feet tall, even taller than Nebuchadnezzar's statue, this idolatrous image of the king. The faith of Daniel's friends was tested on the plains of Dura. Now, the exact location there, verse 1 of Dura, we can't know for sure, but the most likely place is about 16 miles south of the city of Babylon itself. The location that archaeologists have found seems in harmony with the text. Nebuchadnezzar therefore constructs this enormous image out on the plain so all the kingdom can come, leave the crowded city, the construction site 16 miles away, and everybody can gather around and worship the image he's made. Now, a lot of discussion goes on about what was it a statue of? What was the image that was constructed 90 feet tall that everyone had to bow down and worship to? Was it a depiction of the megalomaniacal monarch himself? Is this Neb doing a Neb statue for everybody to bow down and worship? That's a possibility. Was it an image of one of the Babylonian gods like Marduk, the chief god of the city of Babylon and the national god of Babylonia? Was it Marduk to whom they were to bow? Or is it simply an obelisk like the Washington Monument, just something like that? It doesn't really matter, does it, whether it's the king or a pagan god or simply an obelisk. It's all the same. Whatever it was, God's people can bow down and worship nothing save God alone. In fact, to do so, if they were to give in and bow down, they would break the first two great commandments found in Deuteronomy 5. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, on earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, your Lord, your God, I am a jealous God. So they will break the commandments if they choose to bow down. Now, verses 2 and 3, when you have that reading assignment, it's, it's never a favorite in the Bible read. You have to list all those different classifications of ranking officials twice. Notice they're listed in verse 2. They're listed again in verse 3. The highest ranking being the satrap and the lowest being the ruler of all the provinces. So they are listed in descending order of prominence and hierarchy and power. But this rhythm of repeating all the various offices that are gathered around Neb's pet project, the statue, well, they serve to build the official expectation that everyone, even the satrap, all the way down to the lowest, that all in the kingdom will bow down when the instruments begin to play. Now, during this dedication of the king's pet project, his messenger issues a clarion call. There is no doubt about what's to be done. 
that the moment the orchestra strikes the very first note that everyone great and small will fall and bow down and worship the golden image that Neb has erected. Now, I, I can envision the scene pretty easily in my mind. I bet you can too. The orchestra has already been tuned to the first chair. They're ready. They've been doing all that warm-up stuff that orchestras do. And those weren't official. That was just kind of the warm-up there. So the orchestra was all warmed up to the first chair. The officials were seated in importance with the safe traps first. They went all the way back. Each classification repeated over and over and over. It was a decorum. You had to seat only where you were allowed to sit. And that gold god was glistening on the plain of Dura. Through the fancy fanfare and the stately statue, Nebuchadnezzar was communicating his power and the glory of his kingdom for all to see. This was about power and prestige and volume and vainglory and kingship and kingdom all wrapped up into one metallic monstrosity. On verses 8 through 12, we have the accusation. Look at those with me. Verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made the decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre and the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration, the prophets of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden image which you have set up. The Babylonian bagpipe sounded. The Chaldean coronets blasted. And every dignitary from every nation fell on his face before the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they worshiped this nine-story tall metallic monstrosity of a statue. Everyone did except for Daniel's three friends. Have you ever been left standing when everyone else is seated? It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? You ever been in that situation? Well, it was a while back, but we had a deacon here. We were, Dan led, standing on the promises of God. And that deacon thought that meant stand up. And so I mean, he heard standing on the promises. He stood up and he's in his hymn book singing away and looks around and, well, he's the only one standing. It's, it's kind of odd to be the only one left standing. And he kind of slipped back down into his pew. It's like if you think you can sit back down, nobody will notice. You know, if you, if you go slow, you can kind of not be seen. But there he was, standing up in the, on, on live television in the congregation, standing on the promises of God. And, well, the rest of us were seated on the promises of God, but he wasn't. Dan, I asked his permission to tell that story. He said it was heresy to sing, standing on the promises of God, seated, by the way. Well, that was what happened to these Jewish men. Although Nebuchadnezzar had not seen them, there were some of the Chaldean counterparts who had. They were aware that no Jew 
could in good conscience bow down to any god other than his own god. And so these Chaldean counselors were focused on the friends of Daniel, watching and wondering, will they bow? The reality is, as a reader of the story, we're wondering, will they bow? Will they bow and later say, you know, in my heart I didn't mean it. I just had to look like I was bowing. So when the bagpipes blast and the cornets, when they are sounded, we ask the question, will they bow? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will they bow? We wait and we wonder. They don't bow. Verse 8, notice they're called certain Chaldeans. They came forward and they accused the Jews. This is a pejorative term from the Babylonian side of the equation for failing to fall before the statue. A literal translation of verse 8, where notice your translation says, brought charges against the Jews. The literal translation of the Hebrew is they were eating the pieces of the Jews. They had eaten the pieces of the Jews. It's like our idiom that we say, chewed them out, chewed them out. They had eaten the pieces of the Jews. They noticed they didn't bow, and so they ate them out. They, they chewed them up, these Jews. They chewed them out. Now, they were labeled as Jews as no mistake, For there was fostered amongst Daniel's friends and the Chaldean counselors a certain amount of resentment. Because when positions of authority were handed out, Daniel got the top and his three Jewish friends got high position as well. How dare these internationals come in and take the positions away from the locals? They point out every failure of the foreigners, especially when they didn't bow down before the statue. Look at verse 12. The certain Jews whom you appointed, Nebuchadnezzar, over the administration of the prophets of Babylon. Why did you let the Jews have these high positions? Well, the Jews stood out different than all the other peoples from all the other nations. For the Jews and the Jews alone could not bow. They had to refuse. They could not join in the worship of the statue. There's three accusations made against them. They paid no attention to the king and his commands. They did not serve the king's gods. And they refused to worship the golden statue the king himself had set up. And the death penalty would be the result. Look at verses 13 through 15. I call that the threat. The threat. The Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and these Then these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you did not serve my gods or worship the golden image I've set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psalter, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, very well. But if you do not worship, you'll immediately be cast in the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. Look at the end of verse 15. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? There's no God can help you. I'm the king. I built the statue. What God do you think is going to save you from me? Well, there was an eruption of his rage, a clear expression between the conflict between Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God. 
It must be the easiest assignment in human psychology to push the buttons of someone with a really, really huge self-inflated ego. It's pretty easy to see, wasn't it? Easy to make, oh, Nebuchadnezzar mad. Nebuchadnezzar, didn't you say everybody has to bow? Did you notice that there were certain Jews who refused to bow? I guess they don't respect you, Neb. He was like an exploding volcano, an eruption of rage. And so he states it one more time. Boys, we're going to play the song one more time. And we're going to play it just for you this time. We're all going to stand and we're going to watch. Now, when you hear the Babylonian bagpipes, when you hear that first note, you had better bow. But if you do not, look at the rage in his eyes. If you do not, you will go straight to the fiery furnace. There is no God that can save you from my power. What God at all is there might be a good translation. What God at all is there who can save you from me? He had, Yahweh had proven himself power to Neb by providing Daniel the interpretation of the dream in chapter 2. But in this moment of megalomaniacal madness, Nebuchadnezzar was challenging Yahweh face to face. He wasn't challenging the three Jewish lads. What kind of God is there? There is no God who can stand up to me. Well, their reply, verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, look at those words, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Their faith was not in their deliverance. Their faith was in the goodness of their God. Their faith was not in their deliverance, but in the goodness of their God. And, and not all men escape martyrdom, do they? John the Baptist didn't escape it. James, the brother of John, didn't escape it. Stephen was stoned. That list of martyrs goes on even to today. Perhaps the Jewish refugees remembered their psalm, well, the Lord is my light, my salvation, and whom shall I fear? But if not, our God is able to deliver us, and if he is glorified in our delivery, that's good. But even if not, he'll be glorified in our faithfulness and our refusal to bow but any God but the true God. Reminds me of the Old Testament of Job, when Job said, going through all his innumerable trials, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. It reminds me of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who says, I'll glorify God with my life or I'll glorify God with my death. It doesn't matter to me. It is all the same. Life and death were the same to Daniel's friends. As long as God's faithfulness was proclaimed, if God chose to save his faithful followers, God would be vindicated. And if God did not choose to rescue them from the fiery furnace, then their faithfulness itself would be a, a testimony to the glory of God. They were willing to die rather than break the commandment of God. In Hebrews, we read that some were stoned, some were sawn in two, some were slain with the sword. 
Each one of us in this room this morning are watching by way of television or live stream. We're all willing to glorify God when things go our way. As long as God delivers us on our timetable, if there's no delay in the deliverance, well, when God doesn't deliver, do you have a but-if-not kind of faith? When the biopsy comes back positive, when you're passed over for the promotion, when the pregnancy test keeps showing up negative, when our children disappoint, these situations and a million more call for God's people to join Daniel's friends and having a but if not kind of faith. Our, our God is able to deliver us. In fact, we think he will, but if not, we're not going to bow, they said. Then, then the punishment, verses 19 through 23. You remember they heat the furnace up all the more. Look at verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. His facial expression was altered. Now, the actual Hebrew says his image was altered. I think it's a play off the image he constructed. You see that? His image was altered Toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than is usually heated. And he commanded a, a certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them in the furnace of the blazing fire. These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and the other clothes. They were cast in the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. For this reason... Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Nebuchadnezzar's ego had been bruised in front of the dignitaries from all the nations. He was certain to make burnt toast out of these boys who refused to bow before his statue. Nebuchadnezzar had all previously roasted two false prophets in Jeremiah 29, Ahab and Zedekiah. In ancient Mesopotamia, think about the furnace, think about an old-fashioned kind of milk jar, milk carton, like this, kind of the funnel shape, and the smoke will come out the top, and then there's a side door on the side, and apparently they were throwing these gentlemen in. The heat on those, scholars estimate somewhere between 1,600 and 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. So when you say heat up seven times hotter, maybe it's something like this. Get it as hot as it will go. They got the fire as hot as it could be. In fact, it was so hot, the, the soldiers who took them up to cast them in, actually the blaze leapt out when they opened the door, and they themselves, they were executed by the fire. Then there's a vindication. Look at 24 and 26. The Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and responded and said to high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered the king, Certainly, O king, he answered, But look, I see four men loosed and walking around the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire and responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. You are servants of the Most High God. Come here. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego came out from the midst of the fire. And verse 27 tells us there was not a hair singed on their head. Now the beginning of this narrative calls for the Jews to bow down. Ironically, the way the storyteller gives it to us, it is Nebuchadnezzar who has to jump up. He told them to, to bow down, but at the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar jumps up because he sees they are unharmed. There is a God in heaven, Daniel had told him. Nebuchadnezzar asked the question in verse 15, but what kind of God is there that can deliver you from my wrath? Daniel had already told them in chapter 2, I can't do it, but there is a God in heaven. The answer comes, it is our God. Yahweh is the God who will deliver us. Now that, that fourth character, it could be plural or singular either way. Some of your translations say he appears like the son of the gods or the son of God. It's, it's like Elohim, a, a word for God. It's used plurally because it catches all the fullness of God, and yet God is one. So it's either the son, he looks like the son of the gods or the son of the God. It can go either way. In fact, we're told later it's an angelic, divine creature. Now, some say this is the Christ. It may, it may not be. That's putting a lot on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. He has no idea about the Christ or the Trinity or anything. It doesn't matter. It's a divine being sent by God, Christ or otherwise, there to rescue them from the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet and says, There is no God like your God. Congregation, even a pagan king can see. What you and I need to see fresh and anew this morning, there is no God like our God. At some juncture in your faith, somewhere along your journey of following God through Christ, you're going to be tempted like Daniel's faithful friends when everybody else is bowing. The question will come. Will you compromise? Will you bow? Will you try to save face and yet be unfaithful in the process? Daniel's friend said, you don't even need to play the bagpipe again. I can go ahead and tell you, we're not going to bow. Do we have a faith like that? And do we have the response, if my God delivers me, that's great, but if not? Sometimes we want to follow God when he opens all the doors and sends all the blessings. But when he uses trials to shape us and mold us and make us, and when we face the difficulties and hardships of life, will we still praise him? Our God is able to deliver us, but if not, it doesn't matter. Is your faith dependent upon God's response to your liking? Or is your faith steadfast? We will not bow. We'll go into the furnace 
God can deliver us, and he probably will. But if not, let us pray. Oh, God, may we be steadfast like Daniel's friends, forever faithful, even in the midst of uncertainty and hardship. And may we stand strong on our faith. May we refuse to compromise, and may we answer with Daniel's friend, our God's the one, our God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.